1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta.
2: The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is
1: a special edition of the podcast with co host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to the special reunion radio edition of Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of sale and investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom in affiliates. As we mentioned, special reunion edition of the program today. All three of our guests today are Wharton grads, two uh, in the studio to start off the show. Uh, also, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, also a Wharton grad. Wes, thanks for coming back to the studio today. Very excited to be here. And thanks for inviting Akshay and his, his partner to be on the show. We're going to introduce our two guests here in just a moment. But Professor Siegel, we have you for some commentary on the market activity this week. Uh, give us your sense. What is what is happening?
3: Yeah. Um, good news on the inflation front this week, um, uh, both on producer prices and consumer prices, and then combined with that moderate wage gain on Friday has given a little bit of relief to the bond market, and that, I think, propped up. Uh, the stocks uh, a bit, although I w- would not be too sanguine about this situation because we still have a, a red hot labor market. While I mean, jobless claims are you know uh, at forty five year lows. Uh, that's um, uh, you know a very important indicator. I mean that that's still two hundred thousand monthly gain, and that's twice as much as uh, you know the the uh, population is providing. Keeps on driving that unemployment rate down. So, yeah, it's a little bit of relief now uh, to this week. But I, I, you know, the long run is the Fed is is definitely in a tightening mode. Will tighten on in June, and I I bet still in September and and December.
1: Yeah. So the tenure keeps hovering around three percent. But we also have sort of geopolitics, sort of seeming to be going in a positive direction. Any commentary on what's happening in in, in those markets there?
3: Well, uh, yeah, you know, geopolitically, you know, the, uh, we had Trump pulling out of the, of course, of the Iran deal, which gave a little bit of a movement uh, to oil, although I think part of the move was beforehand uh, that, uh, you know, the smart money thought that he was actually going to do it. So we have WTI over $71. Wow. I mean, that's good for the S&P, good for the oil. I mean, actually, higher oil prices is good for earnings on the S&P. It's less less good for American consumers, but you know we are almost balanced oil wise in terms of um, production and consumption, uh, and so a higher price is not uh, the terrible bugaboo that it certainly was during the 70s, 80s, and 90s.
1: And so you'll be talking to the uh, the Wharton grads or the Wharton alumni weekend. Any any messages for for the alumni who who are listening, and, and what you are going to be talking to them about tomorrow.
3: Yeah, and so I'm I'm giving a, a talk uh, tomorrow morning and. Uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, I'm going to give that big view on on on, uh, on stocks and returns. Um, and, uh, you know, a little bit, you, basically, you're going to see stocks are still going to be very good returns, not quite as high as the historical average, much greater than bonds. Uh, and this year is, I still think it's going to be up, but much tougher than 2017.
1: Well, Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary to start the show. Thank you. All right. I'm going to... Turn it to our two guests in the studio. We have Akshay Manushkani. Uh, maybe I got. I don't know if I got the... Pr- Mansukani. Mansukani. I didn't get the pronunciation quite right. And, and Sumit Nagar, um, two Wharton grads, managing partners, co-founders. Or uh, or Sumit's the co-founder of Malabar Investments. Akshay is a managing partner at the same firm. Uh, welcome to our studio, gents.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, Akshay, were you you and I were the same class uh, at Wharton?
2: Yes, we uh, I think submatriculated together into the MBA program as well. Uh, well, I didn't quite get into that
1: program, but uh, we were we were well we entered together. Okay. Wes, uh, thanks for again for bringing these guys to to uh, to the show. Um, so actually, maybe talk a little bit about you, you, know, more in What you you, you submatriculated? Where where do you go from Warren, and, and how do you get into to Malabar?
2: Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, I after. Uh, Wharton uh, actually the the journey for post Wharton started at Wharton like like most of us uh, I connected uh, with, with a gentleman by the name of uh, Jason Bremen uh, who was uh, an MBA uh, when I was an undergrad and he was at UBS post uh, graduation and introduced me to the guys there and I had some uh, experience on the derivatives front here uh, when I was at Wharton and so I moved into the derivatives desk at UBS. Uh, uh, on, on Park Avenue that morphed into our alternative capital markets desk, effectively uh, doing everything outside of pre uh, IPOs and follow-ons. Excuse me. So it was pre-IPOs, pipes, uh, private converts, uh, and that morphed into our, our prop desk. Going into 06, 07, we deployed uh, some money uh, alongside deals that we were raising capital for, Um, My father's been in the the Indian business space for many years. He founded a company called Onida. It's a company that manufactures and sells uh, televisions, air conditioners, washing machines. Uh, He founded the company in 1981. Uh, Last year, we were ranked number four uh, consumer durables brand. Uh, And he had, uh, unfortunately, made a a host of private equity investments at the same time in in the Indian marketplace Uh, and pretty much called me up and said, uh, need some help. Uh, and so there was a bias towards the public markets, recognizing that uh, if uh, if we make a mistake, we can exit out of that uh, uh, that situation. Uh, and along my work, uh, I was very lucky. Uh, in India, I did uh, over 80 uh, meetings. I was very lucky to meet with Sumit, uh, and I let Sumit introduce himself. But it was uh, uh, what I recognized an incredible opportunity uh, of information asymmetry uh, if we were doing field work. Uh, on these uh, on these businesses there's pretty low level of uh, fund coverage uh, in the universe that we're uh, investing in and if you have a long term outlook there's a tremendous amount of growth uh, that we're experiencing our Portfolio companies <clears throat> last uh, five years uh, have uh, the top ten names have generated a thirty-two uh, percent weighted average earnings growth, and so if you have patient investors, it mm-hmm. uh, results in uh, stock uh, compounding. Uh, so it's been a long journey, almost almost ten years. I'll I'll turn it over to to Sumit.
1: Yeah, and Sumit, you went to IIT, one of India's top uh, engineering schools, from what I understand, and then you did your MBA here, finance and natural management. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, I was here in nineteen nine You know, I keep joking with Akshay that uh, he needs to pay part of the tuition fee because when we were there, we were we never we were in the Huntsman Hall. Yep. So, uh, you know, so
1: it, it, uh, you're back. Came up. At least yes, you're I'm back here. And so what, tell, how would you when you left when you left Wharton? what was your track to, to getting to Malabar?
0: Sure. So um, I started uh, after I graduated, I started working with uh, McKinsey and Company. And with them, I focused uh, on uh, investment work. So I worked with uh, a number of clients, uh, which were private equity firms, uh, hedge funds, other public market uh, investors. And I advised them on making investments, um, you know, conduct the diligence for them, and so forth. And fairly early on, I had an opportunity to look at uh, investments in India for my clients. And it was something that I was excited about. Um, and the more, work that I did on that front, I realized that some of the best ideas were these small and mid sized companies that were undercovered, under researched, mm. that were growing very well, and yet they, you know, tended to trade at a discount. And so that's a classic value investors paradise, right? You know, where go where the fish are and not the fishermen. And mm. and so um, you know, I talked to some of the value investors and other clients that I knew and with the backing of uh, some of them we started Malabar back in 2007, 2008. So, we're coming up to 10 years now. Very good. So, Sumit
4: so this is uh, Wes. Uh, I've heard the story through Akshay because when he was actually thinking of joining it, we were kind of wargaming different ideas. And he's like, man, do I really want to do this? I'm one of the youngest MDs ever at UBS. This is crazy. Should I join this small hedge fund that's going to trade tiny stocks in India? And obviously, you guys are now you know, a huge success. You mind just stepping back and walking us through those initial stages of starting the firm and you know, were you working in a, you know, cardboard box or like what, what was the scene when you guys started before you became rich and famous?
0: Um, sure. So, you know, just like any entrepreneurial journey, right, it starts with, uh, you know, almost like being in a garage and, uh, you know, just sort of huddling together and, and working. And and I think it's always a tough choice to make, right, because uh, many of us and, and this is true for other working guides who are out there. You know, you're all successful. You're all doing great jobs, and you know, you're doing fairly well. And in many ways, it's a step down, right, to go and start something. You know, you're you're taking a hit on uh, on your, uh, you know, earnings on your on your lifestyle. Uh, but that's the sacrifice you need to make if you want to achieve something longer term. And so I remember when 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 I was trying to start this, uh, you know, I had uh, conversations with uh, some of the people I knew and. And one of the best advice I got, you know, I was saying, you know, I, can, I had offers to join other investment firms, where I could have earned 10 times as much that I was earning at Malabar in day one. And, and one of the best advice I got was uh, somebody who said, you know, forget about all the constraints. Forget about all the money, economics. If there was nothing else, what is it that you would be most excited about, right? And clearly, what I was most excited about was to start a firm that would invest in these Undercover opportunities to unearth these opportunities that other investors haven't seen, and uh, and generate sort of returns through that. And so that's how we got started. Now, just to follow up on that, to make matters even
4: worse, you guys launched in the middle of the financial crisis in two thousand eight. You mind sharing some stories on that and how that (laughs) kind of built your foundation?
0: Sure. So you know, I I sort of bring that point up to say that uh, you know we're not very good market timers. You can you can see that. You know, so our focus has to be on. Bottom of fundamental research, uh, but you know it was a tough journey. When we uh, you know we started, and a few months later the financial crisis hit, and lo and behold, uh, no investor wanted to invest in India, which is you know far away from here, in a new manager uh, focusing on small cap. I mean, this is like you know, three sigma out of what anybody wanted to do. Right?
4: Yeah, it's it's I, almost a bad joke. Yeah. Uh. So, <laughs>
0: so nobody, but I think as it always happened, that was the best time to have been investing in India. Yeah. So yes, it was challenging. You know, we had to uh, make sure that we uh, tightened the belt. You know, we cut costs. You know, I cut my own compensation twice. Um, you know, we re- renegotiated rent, did whatever we could to make sure that we could survive through that. And, and we did
1: and I, I know that well so we started an index for india 10 years ago also it started we just hit its 10 year anniversary and i think the index is basically right where it started they's like a very broad market india when you think about what the rupees done what the market's done now talk about your experience like for for people you have a 10 year history you're up something like what three times yeah so
0: it's been it's been a great journey and yeah so it's, it's uh, you know we've uh, gone 3x in that same period when market hasn't done too much yeah. in dollar terms Uh, And part of that has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, we found these great opportunities, um, you know, terrific companies that were compounding year after year. And uh, their quality wasn't known because people hadn't done the work or done the research to understand them. And and so if you invest in companies like that, they can compound their earnings at a very high enough rate over the years. And then as the recognition of their quality uh, becomes more apparent, uh, there is some sort of multiple rereading that happens as well. And so that's what allowed us to generate these outside returns. And you can it.
1: get very concentrated portfolios in what you're doing. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you know, that's the idea. You, know, you find uh, you find the best companies that you can invest in. You sort of become owners of these companies, and and you generate your returns through that. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> so you know when I think about the early days and what has got us, you know, here uh, sure there's you know keeping your cost low, but in my mind there's three things that uh, that stand out. You know, one. Is just appreciation of your own mistakes. I think uh, in this business where we're just trying to make a few decisions and make more right decisions than wrong, having an open mind, uh, kind of reflecting on you know what went wrong, you know how could, we could improve on it, and having a a culture based on that, I think is uh, is something that we've done you know right from the start. I think second is pulling in team members with different backgrounds and tif- different skill sets, but figuring out a way in which you can disagree but yet move on and, and work together. I think that's That's very powerful. And then third, uh, just get some kind of external accreditation. You know, we had, uh, we we're lucky to, Sumit started with a few um, uh, reputed global investors, but the uh, family of, uh, you know, Oppenheimers, uh, specifically the partnerships of Oppenheimer and Close, uh, came through uh, in uh, 2012, and they've been around since 1985. And I think that really, their Father Phil and son Carl managed the partnerships. They've done, I think, over 50 company visits with us on the ground. And then having them, you know, come in as uh, on our board and, and investors uh, made a big difference.
4: Actually, this is Wes. I, n- I know you got another uh, mover and shaker on your. I think is your board, J- Jim uh, Donaghy, who's near and to me because he's a U.S. Marine and Vietnam vet. Does he help kind of keep you
2: guys aligned around there? Uh, absolutely. So, uh, Jim, uh, we don't uh, waste our words uh, when he's around. Uh, he keeps us completely on track in terms of what the focus is. Uh, and I think he has decades of experience dealing with uh, investments, and specifically, uh, one of his uh, one of their best investments uh, was Value Partners in Hong Kong. Value Partners manage uh, over 18 billion in, in assets. have been around since 1993. Um, and Jim and, and Holding Capital, his firm, were the first investors in Value Partners, mm. you know, back in the day. Uh, and I think it speaks volumes of uh, people who understand emerging markets uh, placing a, a bet, you know, on us in uh, in 2008
1: maybe talk a little bit high level what's the macro case for india not everybody will be able to get to an accredited investor status be able to invest with with you guys um, but what's for people who are looking at india from a macro perspective
2: what's the bullish case for india or the bearish case what what do you uh, sure sure so i think you know when i uh, came back home it was it kind of broke down into three simple uh, buckets uh, you had you know a, a financial system Uh, which was relatively stable. We had absolutely no kind of subprime uh, exposure back when the financial crisis happened. It's been a conservative uh, financial system. A young, hungry population uh, where you have you know over 1.2 billion people, and it's uh, uh, a lot of it is, is low-income per capita. GDP is across $1,000. A, a and so I think uh, people working hard, generating more money, and that money generating a better lifestyle for themselves is something which is a cycle which is extremely powerful, very hard to break, and we see it happening. And then there's the third piece, which is the politics. Which, in today's environment, it's it's more positive than it it has been. But irrespective of the, the who's in charge, since when the economy opened up in '91, uh, we've grown uh, in that six, seven, eight percent zone real, you know, twelve, thirteen percent nominal, you know, over uh, over a couple of decades. You know, so that's kind of a very high level. Uh, I'll turn it over to Sumit.
0: Yeah. So I think when you translate that into an investment viewpoint, you have an economy which is going to be one of the fastest-growing economies in the world over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, when you have that sort of strong tailwind behind you, it's easy for companies to grow at, at a very fast rate, and, and that's what creates a lot of value and wealth for investors. And so that's a clear macro case that you're going to have a country that's going to be one of the fastest-growing economy, uh, a country that's going to be adding most number of people to the workforce over the next 20 years, and, uh, and you want to participate in that. Uh,
4: Samit, Akshay, uh, another question for right? you. One of the big concerns people have with India is you know, they read about corruption, like the rule of law. And Akshay, I know you're you know, chair of the hedge fund subcommittee on what's equivalent to the Indian SEC. And I know you're kind of leading the efforts to make sure that's squared away in the future. you mind speaking to that? Sure. So uh,
2: the <clears throat> Indian regulations are uh, kind of fairly Old school and archaic, and I think what we realize is we can learn a lot from European and, and US uh, regulations. And uh, uh, the alternative investment fund uh, concept uh, came about, you know, a few years ago. We were one of the first funds uh, to get a license, and through that process, we started our interactions with the Security and Exchange Board of India (SEBI). Uh, And what we realize is they're an extremely open-minded organization. They realize they need to do what's right for the ecosystem. But there are certain things that you learn along the way. Uh, So, for example, uh, there's a fair amount of uh, kind of corruption in the system, uh, which needs to be addressed, and so while we're focused on what's the right thing, many times you'll hear from SEBI officials, well, you know, if I was a, a crooked guy, I could get around, and so let's try and fix this loophole. You know, so there's a little bit more time spent on on trying to fix loopholes. Uh, apart from that, I would say it's a very nascent market. I think on the in the hedge fund or alternative investment fund space, there's only three billion dollars uh, uh, in aggregate, which is there today. So it's really a, a drop in the bucket, and you know, a lot more um, can be done and I think as we kind of uh, have we've already made changes uh, to the regulation it's uh, it's been a fair amount of work and we have to work with the finance ministry we have to work with the Reserve Bank of India we have to work with the tax authorities so there's many different groups that we have to pull together to uh, to make a change uh, but overall I would say we're, we're definitely heading in the right direction
1: we're talking with Akshay Mansukhani, Sumit Nagar of Malabar investments um, and you know you focus on India investments and really small mid-caps. now one of the things we talked about how much you can add value over a market and so there's this question on how efficient or inefficient are markets and clearly you guys are being able to add excess returns you know dramatically for india how would you describe your investments though it's it sort of sounds like you're going for big growth companies but then key part is the valuation because they're growing so fast like how do you describe your your process
0: Sure. So we we think of ourselves as value investors, right? And uh, you know we're looking for value. We're looking to buy companies for less than what they're worth. I mean that's the core tenet of value investing. Um, it's just that you are in a growing economy, where growth is a strong component of value, right? Yeah. So you have to be able to understand the growth. You need to make sure that it's profitable growth, that it doesn't consume a lot of capital to achieve that growth, um, and you're not overpaying for that growth, right? And and how sustainable that growth is. And what is the longevity of that growth and and to be able to get that you need to have strong sustainable competitive advantages uh, the moat around these businesses. And so our work is pretty much structured around understanding those things. number one is you know how attractive this, this business is in terms of its economics uh, can it generate outsized returns in terms of uh, return on equity and cash flow over long periods of time and and through that it can fund its own growth. Um, and and if they can do that then they don't need any capital to grow over a period of time and 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 for that what is the real motor on this business what is their differentiation so we do a lot of on the ground work so we're going out and meeting the companies we're meeting their suppliers we meet their distributors customers um you know we'll we'll, we'll even sort of go and do ref check on 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 through their neighbors people living in the same community so there's a lot of hard work it's almost like kind of diligence that private equity firms would do on their companies. But you need to go and sort of kick the tires, you need to go pound the pavement to be able to really understand.
2: Yeah, Just add one thing, in in India, uh, the families that own these businesses, in most cases manage the businesses as well. Uh, so we have to kind of make sure that the people we're dealing with are clean, uh, they have the right mindset, uh, you know, their outlook on capital allocation uh, is astute, uh, they have the track record of, of dealing with minority investors in, in the right manner. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, a fair amount of work. And, uh, you, and if, you know, the best kind of case for us is if competition uh, acknowledges, you know, the company that we're evaluating that they are doing a good job, uh, it speaks volumes.
4: This is Wes. Um, it's, it's super interesting. I almost feel like you guys are the Warren Buffets of India. Uh, have you ever? I mean, everything you're saying is is very Warren Buffett esque. Is that someone you look up to as an investor? Or?
0: We, we definitely look up to uh, to Warren and Charlie. We were just there in Omaha uh, this past weekend. Uh, but I don't think we have done anything close to deserving uh, the, the title that you're saying. But she, I think. You get 30% <laughs> return for the first 10 years and then the second 10 years? Well, you guys are
4: on your way. On the way. But um, I think the,
0: the, the key thing is to apply those principles in Indian market, in the Indian context. So you can't just do a copy paste. You can't do what sort of Warren and Charlie have done here and do the same thing in India. Uh, you know, the context is different, the market is different, so you need to do that a little bit differently. Uh, so for example you know we we tend to spend a lot of time truly understanding the management and 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 their quality and how, what motivates them, what drives them uh, you know do they have the capability to take this business five times the size of where they are today but I think fundamentally, I think it's the Indian market is is young enough it's early enough it's it's you know we've had some of our mentors uh you know tell us you know people have been in here in the u s so phil oppenheimer was uh, was uh, been invested with us and has been mentored who has, you know, when he comes to India and sees companies, he says, you know, this reminds me of U.S. in the 60s and 70s. You have these sort of young companies, industrial companies growing rapidly, a lot of market power. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, just trying to find companies like that and investing in them.
1: Do Do you guys want to tell a story about maybe a company you guys own in the portfolio and the case for sort of as an anecdote for what's happening in India generally?
0: Sure. I mean, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, people come to the U.S., they realize, you know, air travel is so prevalent, right? It is just so common, uh, you know, it's hard to find anybody who hasn't traveled by airplane here in the U.S. Uh, If you go to India, it's exactly the opposite, right? You have maybe less than 10 percent of population who has ever flown, uh, but it's changing rapidly, right? So you're finding uh, that India is the fastest growing aviation market in the world. Um, But, you know, just like the old days, the anecdotes that you don't want to be involved in the gold rush, you don't want to own the gold mine, you want to own the showers. So, you know, we don't want to be investing in airlines and and see that volatility. But when you travel, what do you need? You need bags. Right. So we invested in a company that um, is one of the luggage makers in in India. And that's an industry which is also growing in line with the the growth of the airline industry, of the tourism industry um, and and. In India, as well as in globally, this industry is always very concentrated. So in India, you have three players who control ninety percent of that market and uh, and you know this company is is benefiting from that growth, so they're a very very strong tailwind. The second interesting thing is that uh, as anybody who's traveled to India would realize that there are lots of motorcycles, there are lots of two wheelers out on the on the road, and that has happened over the last ten years that India has become the largest manufacturer and consumer of motorcycles. But when you travel on motorcycles, it's very difficult to carry anything. So people use backpacks. So backpacks mm. market has become very big. So the company that we invested in, uh, they make luggage, but they also make backpacks, and and that's seeing a very very rapid growth today. And there's a lot of product innovation that's coming into those products. And so we have this company that uh, you know has very strong tailwinds behind this. And on top of that, there's a there's a great management change. You know, so we had this company that had been. Uh, you know, number three company of the three sort of big players, uh, which had been languishing for many years. And and then a very strong, capable CEO came in. He put his life's earnings to, to buy this business. And since he has bought this, uh, it's been growing at 30% year on year for the last five years. So that's a kind of an example where there's a strong market tailwind, You have a very capable CEO who's come in, who's attracting the right people around him.
1: And what's the valuation on a 30% growth business like that? So I I forgot to say one more (laughs) point.
0: I forgot to say one more point, right? Uh, That as the business is growing, it's getting more and more operating leverage. And so its earnings are growing even faster because the margins are improving. Uh, So, optically, obviously, when you looked at the business, it it sort of looked expensive. When we initially bought it, it was. uh, Uh, It was at one-and-a-half times sales. And there's a reason why I'm using sales is because the margins were really depressed Mm -hmm. at that point in time. Uh, Since we've invested over the last one year, the earnings have grown by about 90% year-on-year. So they're growing very rapidly, and they're easily growing into their valuation.
4: Got it. So, Sumit, this is uh, my attempt at stock picking. But when I was in India, one of the biggest things I, I guess, wandered into is the fact that traffic is totally insane and there seems like no rules so are there any uh traffic sign makers in india that you guys are checking out because i'm very bullish on that
0: they're not getting any business today <laughs> okay
4: if they post no one will follow them right exactly now one um one thing that's super interesting just from listening to you guys talk is you know here in the states and more competitive markets it's all quant factors data driven it almost sounds like everything you're mentioning here is maybe quant is a very small piece and it's 95% qualitative. You mind speaking to that?
2: Sure. I think we've uh, we recognize some of the large funds in America that have uh, they've been quant focused and have been doing doing really well. Uh, what we hear from our friends in the community and and what we see as well. Is there a couple of kind of issues uh, in on the quant side? I think one is just the access uh, to the data and clean data. It's difficult to get, uh, given changes in, uh, in in accounting treatment, and then also kind of the timeline that you have the data, you know, for uh, for the larger names where there is actually liquidity to uh, to go ahead and execute on some of these strategies. I've heard uh, my friends at the big funds mention that even if they were to be successful, the total capacity for the strategy would be 100 million, uh, and it would grow a period of time. But to dedicate the resources, you know, it, it may not make sense, uh, just given the size today. Uh, the Just to po- provide some context, uh, futures and options are available on maybe 200 stocks in India at the moment, and the liquidity is maybe 50 stocks. So you're yet uh, a pretty nascent uh, economy and uh, in even more nascent uh, stock market.
1: Okay. Now, you guys started off focusing on small caps, and you sort of ran into, I think you sort of closed your original fund. Now you're starting to focus on mid-caps. Any commentary on, on, on that, you know, how sure. you guys are tar- targeting the market?
2: We, you know, we've been focused on, on small and, and mid-caps right from the start. I think the investment philosophy has been very clear. Try and find uh, the number one or number two uh, business in that specific niche that you're focusing on. And in certain cases, maybe consumer, those companies are, are smaller. Uh, less than $750 million is the threshold by the National Stock Exchange between small and mid. And then on the mid-size, you may have certain financial companies that uh, may be you know, m- larger in market capitalization. Uh, I think as we grow, we've seen a fair amount of movement of certain companies from the small to the mid. Uh, we've hard closed our, our small and mid-cap fund now, coming close on on 10 years. And, and two years ago, uh, Value Partners, I mentioned uh, being one of our initial investors, wanted to you know add some capital, and so we just uh, created the sleeve, the mid-cap sleeve off our portfolio for them. So it's uh, uh, nothing new; it's existing names in the portfolio. We're just able to allocate uh, more capital to those companies. Uh, and I think again, what what gives us uh, the great confidence is just the sheer earnings growth on both you know the small and the mid-cap, uh, and a company. You know doesn't uh, think too much when it crosses seven fifty million and it goes from small to mid they they keep growing uh, so I think it's a it's a pretty long term story that we can benefit from
1: yeah. and, uh, sorry Jeremy go going to say we're running out of time our first segment but uh, I know actually I think you can stick with us to meet any sort of closing thoughts things that you've learned at Malabar you want to bring back to the Wharton community here for for union weekend
0: sure I think uh you know for uh, many of uh, the fellow graduates uh, you know they're some of the people who have graduated in the last few years, there's always that thought you know, at some point that you want to become an entrepreneur, you want to start something. Uh, but it's a challenging decision many times because you have uh, other financial sort of liabilities and, and, and you want to be careful. But I would say is that if you're really passionate about something, if you really want to do something, just go and do it, right? You know, there's, there's enough safety nets around. The cost of failure is so low. Uh, and, and you never want to have the regret that, oh, I should have done that. Yeah. So if you're passionate about it, just go do it.
1: Very wise words. Thanks for, uh, for joining us. to meet, And Akshay, so you're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111's our special reunion radio edition of the show. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, joined in the studio by Wes Gray Akshay Matsukani and we've got Christopher Swan, founder of Cygnus Capital here, another Wharton graduate with us on Wharton Reunion Radio Weekend. Um, Christopher, welcome to our studio here.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome back to campus. Um, so you are now you know, sort of founder of Cygnus Capital. You have a few different funds, uh, real estate fund, a private equity fund, uh, but after Wharton, it looks like you... Uh, went to McKinsey and then also SAC Capital. Is that, uh, is that correct? you want to talk a little bit about your career after, after Wharton?
5: Sure. I've uh, done a lot of things uh, after Wharton. Uh, initially, I worked for uh, McKinsey in Atlanta in strategic consulting uh, and then started uh, some software companies uh, in the dot-com era, if you guys remember that back in the day. Um, that led to uh, me uh, joining a hedge fund, actually, and doing stock investing, a, a hedge fund called GMT Capital in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where I uh, built out their uh, technology investment platform, uh, opened up their Hong Kong office uh, for investing, um, and ultimately- you came back from Hong Kong? You didn't want to came stay? Came back from Hong Kong, yeah. So that was in uh, uh, 90s, let's say 2003 to 2008. Um, really interesting dynamic time in, in Asia, for sure. Um, and then I got an opportunity to work for Steve Cohen uh, from 2008 to 2013.
1: Very interesting. And so, we yeah. were at, at, at Cohen's shop. You were doing long-short technology.
5: Yeah. So basically, the same uh, same strategy that I was doing at the hedge fund in Atlanta uh, built out a team where we had um, uh, a team of seven people. We had three analysts in uh, in in Hong Kong, two in Japan, and one in the U.S. We were covering uh, technology globally and then also uh, Asia as a geography. So, uh, pretty big mandate in terms of. Uh, the area that I, I covered, both from a sector standpoint and from a geography standpoint. Um, but really interesting time to be in the markets, obviously, with the financial crisis, and, and then to look at the impact of the financial crisis uh, globally.
1: So what do you think about technology generally from, you know, you talked about the, the sort of tech bubble in 98, 99. Like, how do you think today, What are, where are we in the tech cycle today? What do you think about tech yeah. generally today versus back then?
5: Yeah, well... Uh, you know, I'm I'm 47. I would say I've seen every cycle in the world, but I have started to see a few now, and so that's interesting. Uh, when I look back at my experiences in starting a, a company and being an entrepreneur in the in the dot com era, and then being an investor uh, through uh, the financial crisis and also through the dot com era, uh, you know, you do start to see patterns, um, and uh, you you start to see. Uh, uh, exuberance and you see sort of the willingness for people to forget what has happened in the past um, and I think um, I think we're sort of setting up in one of those scenarios it's hard to say how how long this will run in terms of the uh, in terms of the markets exuberance here but I think we're closer to the end than the beginning uh, for sure uh, which is an easy statement to say but uh, we're definitely at kind of elevated levels from an evaluation standpoint I think um, uh, but you know it could go quite 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 a bit further uh, as we saw in 1999 sometimes you go you know many many standard deviations from away from what you think is possible but um but I, i don't know it's a long answer but yeah yeah hard to say exactly where we are but i think we're i think we're sort of in the on the elevated side from evaluation perspective so christopher this is wes you've obviously got quite the pedigree
4: from reading your bio there uh, it sounds like five funds you started, two software companies kind of done it all you You might elaborate on what you 're what you're doing right now and how you 're trying to either take advantage of this misvaluation or opportunities in the market
5: yeah sure, so i think that's a great characterization of, of sort of how i 've approached my my, my career and, and and certainly the fund that i s or company i started after i left I left s a c um so when i left uh it was in two thousand thirteen um, and there was an opportunity in the in the real, in the uh, real estate market really to take advantage of distressed uh, property values. So I had personally done some investing in the 2011 2012 uh, time period, uh, buying distressed real estate primarily in the southeast. Um, we were buying pools of of uh, commercial real estate and uh, defaulted debt, um, which we were doing workouts on, and that led to the foundation of, of Cygnus Capital. So our first four funds were focused around uh, raising uh, capital and investing. Um, uh, money in, in the real estate market, which was, again, a little bit of a departure from what I was doing before, but um, from a fundamental standpoint, a lot of the exercise, at least from an investment standpoint, is the same. So Cygnus Capital focused on that, um, uh, on our first four funds. There were private equity-type structures, and then more recently, we've uh, we've launched a, a long-short equity hedge fund, which is similar to what I was doing at GMT and SAC.
4: Very nice. What was it? Quantitative-driven, qualitative, technology-focused? What's the... What's the high level process?
5: Yeah, so so um, on the on the on the real estate side, it's really value orientation. Trying to find an opportunity where we, we can uh, we can add value, and we, I do have a couple of partners. Uh, so my partners uh, help particularly on the real estate side. Uh, but the um, the process there really is 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 looking for a, a discount to to market you know so if I think about my investment approach it 's always been trying to find uh, you know valuation disconnects and so certainly there was a really large one uh, in in that on the real estate side and on the hedge fund side uh what what we've what we've really been been doing here is uh recently is is applying a quantitative approach to the framework of investing um, and I can give some examples here in a bit but um, but basically what we do is we use some quantitative uh, modeling to, uh, to suss out um, uh, situations that are, are many standard deviations away from a norm. So we try to find very high probabilistic uh, scenarios and then do fundamental uh, analysis after that. So, so uh, you know, we're just trying to set ourselves up for situations where there's, um, you know, a good, uh, st- you know, statistical chance that we can uh, have an outper- you know, outperformance um, so it's a blend of quantitative to sort of find uh, and narrow the funnel, if you will. If you take the 8,000 or 10,000 uh, stocks that you could invest in in a given day, that's impossible to think to think through. And, and so we try to use some quantitative analysis to find opportunities to to uh, to find those uh, needles in a haystack, so to speak. And then we uh, provide uh, then we then we do fundamental analysis against that to uh, to, to, to fill out the portfolio. This is Akshay.
2: Quick uh, question on uh, on really the, the people that you have around you. You know, I recognize that uh, we have a, a small team and, you know, building out uh, with the partners, uh, it can be extremely critical in terms of, you know, how you guys get along, how you work together. Uh, you know, if you could just share some thoughts on how you went around finding uh, your, your partners and your and your team and, and how it's been so far. Yeah, that's a great. I think... Um...
5: I I have a great appreciation over my career and and what a small group of people can do if they're motivated and and they have the right chemistry. I think I think team building is is super important, but it's also very hard. Um and so uh that is a constant uh struggle in in the companies I've been involved with or founded is is getting that right that chemistry right, finding the right people, motivating them. Um it's it's certainly uh it's an under uh, appreciated uh uh, skill set, and I'm not saying I'm an expert at it by any any stretch, but it's it's certainly something that we we focus on, and we try to uh, always uh, put the right people in the right right positions, and then motivate them.
1: It's interesting to hear you describe the process as sort of blend of quant looking for these outliers, then applying fundamentals. And and when you think about quant, and sort of Wes and I, I think about quant from a value perspective a lot. Like, does value apply to tech? Like. Are you looking for value stories within tech? Or are you looking for, like, earnings growth that's a big outlier? Like, how do you think, like, what's the process that works? Yeah,
5: a great, great question. Uh, generally speaking, I think uh, tech, the tech sector is a great place to look for shorts. I'll just say that kind of flat out. Hmm. And the reason for that is you've got, typically got high valuation, you've got tremendous technological innovation, uh, you've got op- obsolescence risk, uh, you've got, uh, you know entrepreneurs that are working really very very hard every day to to be the next greatest thing uh so i think to having a to have to have a sustainable competitive advantage in technology is you know sort of almost impossible i mean there are companies out there that that have have done that for a long time you can talk about microsoft and intel and a, and a few but um but by and large the uh, the tech sector is an a, is an, a sector that's uh got constant disruption by design um and so it 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 is better. It is a better area to look for short opportunities. Um, but certainly there are some long opportunities. There's and if you can get in early and you can find a company that's underlooked that has the growth potential that uh, that can be there for a, a period of time or perhaps even on a sustainable basis. They can make very interesting and, and uh, powerful longs. But I would say in general it's a better area to, on the short side.
4: Christopher, this is Wes. Uh, quick question on uh, on the short side. I, I agree with you. But you know a lot of times shorten tech firms like playing with fire, yep. H- how do you manage that risk of being right but maybe being wrong right. on the way there? yeah you
5: got any inside baseball on that <laughs> yeah i'll give you, I'll give you an example uh, that I think is interesting as maybe just an insight and in, in, in some of the way we combine quantitative analysis and and, and fundamental stock picking. So, so you know, when I talked earlier about looking at the markets and trying to find unique situations where we're, uh, where there's outliers, uh, we we do this in a lot of different ways. But just to give one example, we have a model that we call kind of high growth uh, growth and uh, euphoria. Uh, expectations reset model, it's a lot of words there, but basically the idea is is if you think about high growth companies, uh, they can grow a long time, right? Uh, and the valuations can match that. Um, but when do you, when is the opportunity, when does that reset happen? Um, and generally the markets are very, uh, if you think about behavioral economics, markets and people tend to be optimistic um, but usually that optimism is incorrect. Um, and, and so how can you kind of quantify that and, and, and look for opportunities from an investment standpoint? So, so we will look for, uh, for as, as just one example, uh, if, you, if you look over the last uh, three decades and you, and you look at all the companies that are above a uh, price-to-sales ratio of five um, and, and, and you look at specific events when they say, let's say they had the down day of 10%, just that one factor, so a price-to-sales ratio of a company that's greater than five and it has a down day of, of greater than 10%, uh, it's over the next next 20 trading days, as an example, that company typically on average will be flat. But if you look over a two-year period, that, that company on average will be down uh, 24%, uh, and the median company of that universe will be down 50%. So if you think about that as a, from an investment uh, uh, universe standpoint, that's a pretty interesting uh, area to, uh, to start doing some stock picking in. Um, so those are the types of things, as an example, where we try to balance uh, sort of that euphoria, that timing aspect in a in a subset of the market that is very high high probable high probably to have a good outcome that we're looking for. In this case, a short outcome. Um, so it's it's uh, instead of just sort of looking writ large, I'm going to short Tesla or I'm going to short whatever you know the high valuation company is. That's very difficult and 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 very hard. But if you look at a situation where you've got a trigger, perhaps where you've got a high pop, probable outcome, then the universe, or universe gets smaller, and the number of companies you have to analyze and look at is also
2: smaller. Yeah, this is Akshay. Christopher, you have a uh, fantastic background, and uh, you're, you're, you've successfully you know, created your firm. In terms of your own time spent, uh, in terms of your different strategies, you mentioned you have some partners. If you could just uh, kind of let us know, what, what does your average uh, day look like?
5: Yeah. So uh like I said the firm got started on the on the private equity and real estate side uh, that that consumed a lot of our early years um and also a good bit of my time um it, you know increasingly you know I, I like I I like the um I like the investment process um what i have tried to do increasingly is to set up the firm so that i can spend more of my time on the analysis and investment process and less on the administrative and uh, management part um which ties into your previous question that's hard to do it, you know it'd be nice if you could just sit in a room and make money by yourself but it doesn't work that way you got to build a company so uh so it is difficult it's a challenge i think uh, i'm sure you have a lot of entrepreneurs on your on your show that that, that how do you, you know how do you balance that t- team building part of it with the actual business part of it um and uh, and I, that's very true in investment management. I mean, the nice thing about investment management is you can, with a smaller group of people, um, uh, you know, manage a lot of uh, capital and scale. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, you have to build the organization and, and have the, the right team. So, uh, so I try as much as I can to to spend as much as my time on the investment process part uh, and and less on the management part. But it's uh, you
2: know you can't really ignore it.
1: Actually, flipping that back to you, like, how are you spending your time managing Malabar?
2: Thank you. So, for me, uh, you know, I started in uh, 2009 with uh, with Sumit, and at the point in time, we were really just a couple of people. Uh, and what I realized is coming in from the U.S. Uh, and into India, while I had a, a great relationship base. Uh, spending time really understanding the business was kind of the starting point. So the first few years, I just spent on investments, leveraging the relationship base. Uh, many of my friends run uh, the public, uh, you know, companies where we we look at or uh, or kind of acquaintances of mine. And so it's it's a very relationship based culture, and we've been very uh, kind of lucky to have you know the access to these people. And in terms of just going ahead and doing our diligence, getting certain insights uh, into the businesses and kind of the decision making from the you know from these groups, it's been important and then slowly I dovetailed into the business development leveraging uh, the Wharton network and, and bringing groups such as the Oppenheimer's to the table to uh, to really grow the grow the firm and so to today I try and spend 5050 uh, I have two dedicated uh, resources on uh, on the business development it really depends on the year you know how it how it goes by uh, on in terms of my time really the first few hours of the day just reading uh, would be a, a successful day you know you know for me uh, but we gotta also be uh, uh, cognizant of uh, you know the, the team building uh, that we uh, that we discussed it 's uh, a twelve person team, and so there 's a lot of uh, management stuff that that comes in and that 's probably the the one thing going into this uh, this role that I did not expect is the human management piece managing uh, the investors managing the team as well as uh, managing the, the the CEOs and the, the owners of these companies uh, it's it 's a, it's a full time exercise I often say
1: managing people and personalities is harder than doing your day job day to day that that 's actually the key part of your day job is managing people, workflows, and processes.
4: One of our – this is Wes. One of our big clients here, he gave me some advice early on. He says, Wes, humans, bad computers, good. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the more you, you work with people – I mean, I love people too, but – I, I I see the uh, the wisdom in that statement more and more over over time. I don't know.
1: Actually, you got to figure out how you get a computer to uh, do your qualitative assessment. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that
4: new Google Duplex. Have you seen that? That was insane. Yeah, they've got they've got some new uh, technology. Maybe you can hire Google to you know, quiz the CEOs or something. I, uh, <laughs> I,
5: I think it's so true, though. You find a company that uh, has figured out how to manage uh, a lot of people in scale. It's very impressive, right? It's just, don't see it that often. Um, you know, whether it's a service industry or, or whatever, the, or manufacturing industry, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. But the companies that do it well, you know, they've got it in their DNA. So
1: we're, we're talking with Chris Swan of Cygnus Capital, Akshay Manasukhani of Malabar. We got Wes Gray, Alpha Architect, all Wharton grads here. On reunion weekend, uh, radio weekend, uh, Chris. When you think about the different funds you have, the you know the, the real estate and the tech and the sort of long short hedge fund, is there? Any, do you think one's a better opportunity than another? Where would you you know if you're, you're allocating your own capital, you know where do you think the the opportunities are today?
5: Yeah, that's that's a, a great question. Uh, you, you know, I, I think we mentioned previously. Uh, you know, I, I look for uh, big dislocations in, in the market and uh, an in, in investment opportunity. I, I personally where I like to invest my capital and and then also that hopefully the capital of our investors is in opportunities that uh, that really have a, a meaningful upside and to me that means a, a kind of a double over three years at least uh, or if you're looking at a, a short opportunity kind of 50 percent down uh, over the same time period um, in, in in real estate it's the same way uh, you know I think going into an investment where you have to put a a lot of debt on a, on on equity to get a levered return. You're, you're you're really kind of squeezing the lemon hard there to to, 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 to get a, a reasonable return. Um, so that was in, what was interesting in the financial crisis. Is that as a cash buyer of distressed assets, you could really pick up a lot of assets way below their replacement cost, um, which was a unique event in the in the market. Um, and there's still opportunities in the real estate sector today, even uh, even this far along. But Uh, But those are the opportunities we look for personally and also for our, our investors. Uh, Christopher, this is uh, Wes. Um, quick question, and, and you don't have to answer. It's
4: a hard one. But uh, there's this portfolio I call the uh, millennial sixty forty. 40 It's uh, 60% Tesla and 40% Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> Do you have Amazon. any uh,
5: opinions short, on Short uh, on Bitcoin, the... long Tesla? Or, yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> or, or which one? <laughs> well, they're or long. Long, both long love Okay, just long uh, I'm curious yeah. what
4: you think about some of these hot topics out there. Yeah,
5: they're, uh, they my, so I knew Bitcoin was a top, and I love my son. He's a great Son, a boy, and uh, but he said, "Hey, Dad, you got to buy some Bitcoin." This is uh, I think, right around December fifteenth. So that that was an interesting point in, in Bitcoin's uh, uh, price. And and I told him no. I thought it was too speculative. He came back like a week later, and it was like up twenty percent. Said, "Dad, I told you so." And I I, 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 there's not, there's been many times in my investment career where somebody said, "I told you so," uh, and and that's fine, right? Over short time periods, you, you can be wrong, you know. But you, but I, I think when you uh, have some. Um, time under your belt, you realize you sort of got to look a little further than, you know, a few days or a few weeks or a few months. Uh, And so, yeah, so I think Bitcoin is really interesting. The underlying technology blockchain is super interesting. Uh, But I think if you, I think the best analogy is 1999. I mean, think of all the companies in 1999 that aren't here today, but think all the great companies that are here, right? So, you know the, the pets.com and all that kind of nonsense is gone but we still have amazon and we have some still still have some uh, fantastic companies around and i think that same thing is we're going to happen in in the bitcoin space you got i don't know what is it, 800 you know coin offerings at this point um, you know, 99% of those will be gone. Maybe it'll be 2 or 3% that will still so be around. And it's really hard to pick out which ones. Tesla is, a, and I, I go on, Tesla's another really interesting one. Um, um, you know, love the, love the product. hate the stock, I guess, is the best way I'd describe it, yeah.
4: Makes sense. What, what about the FANG stocks? You got any, uh, just people love to hear, and you're obviously an expert, like Facebook, yeah. Amazon, Netflix, Google. What's yeah. the long I, I, short? <laughs>
5: Uh so from a competitive uh, differentiation standpoint you know I do think Amazon's a company again I don't think the valuation's um I think the valuation at some point will stall out you know again you know look at a, look at a company like Microsoft in the in the dot com run up um you know a very very rapid growth but at some point you know, the valuation has to keep up with itself, uh, keep you know, catch up. And so those companies, whether they're Microsoft, Dell, uh, you know, any company that has a really, really high growth period will hit a point where the stock just flattens out for a long time. Um, and so I, I think we're probably at the very beginning of a phase like that for many of these high growth companies. Um, um, that, that, so Amazon, I think, would be a company that, you know, certainly going to be around. Facebook probably, too. Um uh, just because I think the network effect is so powerful, but if you, I would compare. I think an interesting analogy is like a Facebook versus a Snapchat. Right? Snapchat's probably not very defensible. Um, you know, it's been something I've been short for some time, um, just because it's more of a feature than a business. Um, whereas I think Facebook actually probably is a business. That doesn't mean the valuation's uh, interesting or, or necessarily I buy it. But, but, but if I wouldn't short a Facebook, but I would short a Snapchat.
1: Our final two minute countdown. I know another big deal in this related space, Flipkart in in India. Uh, any any quick comments on uh, the deal there?
2: Um, you know, so uh, the, uh, the in terms of businesses, the Indian homegrown businesses in the e commerce space, which are. You know, clear leaders in uh, in what they do. I think just having that competitive uh, advantage and and being in that top position in a space which is growing really rapidly. Just point of, point of reference, I think the e-commerce business in India is close to 20 billion. China is close to 900 billion right now. So clearly, there's a tremendous amount of growth. And I think uh, running that business, uh, at, there was I think from an investor's perspective, there was an issue where there was a fair amount of capital that went in, uh, and so a lot of products were being sold below cost, and that happened uh, for a couple of Years and it was a fair amount of disruption to the brick and mortar space as well. So I think that's now gone away. Uh, but uh, you know, few people kind of uh, recognise that how disruptive an investor can be, you know, to a business model. Uh, and I think, and from a strategic perspective, uh, they're going to go. Uh, my sense is with uh, with the highest price, maybe maybe it's a it's a Walmart. Uh, clearly, you know, I'm biased in in terms of that's what I what I do. But clearly, the the consumption story in in India is huge, uh, and e-commerce is. Uh, you know something which is going to really explode you know over over a period of time. So I think uh, I don't think they're going to uh, lose any money on uh, on the transaction long term, uh, but uh, it's definitely very heartening to see the global interest in India. Well, Wes, Akshay,
1: Chris, we're out of time. Happy uh, Wharton reunion weekend! Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks Absolutely. for being with us. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM One Eleven. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.